people think that you can't have fun and make money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you're yeah, totally. living proof that you can have a lot of fun. Yeah, as, lo- as long as the first goal isn't to make money. Because that's what, you know, it's like the classic thing, you know, it's like, it's like the Facebook example. It's like you can't monetize something until you have something. So it's like you have to make something that people want and that you enjoy. And then you can work out how to monetize it. But if you, if you, with, with most people starting businesses, they're so obsessed with how's this going to make money that they immediately start. And like, even that's how Aloham started actually. It was me trying to do a magazine and I delayed it for years because I couldn't work out how to make a magazine make money. I was like, oh God, it's going to cost me like 20 grand an issue. I'm going to have to sell this many ads. I don't know how to sell ads. And then I was just like, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to make a zine. It won't cost me anything. I'm just going to do it. I can't, I, I can't, I can't work it out. So I just did it. And then it just eventually turned into a thing. You know, it's like, um, yeah, I think that's one of the main reasons with business school. It's just like they're going, what's your business plan? It's like going, well, your business plan just to create something awesome, you know, and then when people want it and if you want it, other people will want it. It's like people that go, oh, no, I'm going to make something that's going to make money. It's like going, well, then what's the point in just working, like not having fun with your life? It's like do something cool mm. and then work out how it's going to make money. And yeah. And and you'll be more certain it's a good idea because if it's a good idea, it continues. And if it's a bad idea, if you're like selling it really well, but it's still mm. a bad idea, it might not have legs and you might not know it. Yeah, totally. It's the same. It's another, another team. Yeah, like people obsess about market research. <laughs> when like market research should be yourself as your primary market because you have to assume that if it's suits you, it's going to suit other people. So do what makes you happy. And again, that was the core thing. Every single project I did was like, I did it because there's something missing that I wanted. So it's like, I wanted to go to a, I wanted to go to a music festival that was, that had shade, that had bands not playing at the same time as other bands, that I didn't have to like stress out, that had good food, that had good toilets, that I had all, all these things. It's like, it didn't exist. So it's like going, and I'm sure if I feel that, other people will feel that way too. Yeah. Um, and then so, you know, I make something for myself and then I like, you can tailor it a little bit, get, you know, get input from others, but don't let them sway your original intent. And I feel sometimes you definitely look at a product, sometimes you're like going, well, there are way too many cooks in this and now it doesn't have a purpose. It's like, it's literally, you just asked a bunch of people, this doesn't, this doesn't actually fix any problem. No single person actually wants it. They just kind of want it. So yeah. it's like you need to, yeah, if it's something that you want, others will want it. That's always been my belief. Eh? Uh, welcome to Harko Meets Humans, everyone. It is Harko here with Ian Blink Aloham. Hey. Nice to, nice to have you Thanks here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that's such a good point. And I've, I've only just kind of started feeling the truth of that. Of like really like, well, I should just do, there's a fuck ton of people in the world. I want to, I like these things. I should do these things and people will come to it as opposed to being worried about whether people will come to it or how it's going to work. So it's really, it's really good to hear you say that. Um, oh man, I've done a lot of stuff that no one engaged with. And yeah. It's just like, I don't regret any of it. Yeah. It's just like, it's still, I'm still glad I did it. Like I, I look back on it now and I'm like, oh man, that was really cool. Like, Yeah. It's interesting because you've started things back in the day when it was like maybe MySpace was just starting. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and now you're, you're, you've done things all the way through to like where we are now. Is it, I wonder if it's got harder, I wonder if people are focusing more and more on the like it needs to be like completely finished and presented and, and business-wise needs to be making money because of things like Instagram and all this shit we have now. It's so visually focused as opposed to like, what was it, was there less focus on how it's presented and how like much it's finished back in the day when it wasn't so ubiquitous, this kind of like social media stuff? I, I don't know if I've ever tied the two together. I mean, I think looking at 
because so, you know, I was teaching for a few years at Massey, and I think there's definitely, oh man, it's, it's always been a thing. People, right. you know, it's been a thing, a problem with the music scene the entire time I've been involved with it is people can't release something until it's like they've spent so much work on it and they've lost all enjoyment from it. It's like they'll spend three years working on that fucking album, mixing, mastering, they'll like they'll get it remixed, they'll like actually re-record the songs, they'll be like, nah, actually I don't like that anymore. I'm gonna go re-record those songs from scratch. I don't like that artwork, I'm gonna do it again. By the time they release that album, they've lost all passion for it that they then won't actually tell everyone about it. They'll actually just be like, oh God, I just want to do the next album. Or they've written a whole bunch of songs. They've started recording the next record. And it's like, this whole thing is so pointless. It's just like, you if you're a good artist, you should never like what you do. It's like generally everything is kind of like a step to the next place. It's like one of the hardest things for me in my life is that I peaked in 2011. It's just like my festival in 2011. I know I will never achieve that again. <laughs> it's just like, it's like, I, it's, a, it's a struggle for me. It's like, you know, I go, oh, you know, it, it was a, it was daunting for me to know I will, I've already achieved my peak as an artist. So it's like, I kind of go, okay, well, that's fine. I, I know I can't achieve that. So I'm going to do other stuff and I'm going to like try and peak there as well. But I, I know that it, t- it takes time, it takes time to peak. And you should always, always find, you know, every time I do a project, I go, okay, what was wrong with that? And I like debrief it and I go, okay, how can I improve it next time? It's like, you should never be completely happy. It'd be weird. Then you'd stop making art. It's like for me, that was kind of the reason, one of the reasons that camp faded out. I was like going, okay, I tried to change the direction of camp in 2012 and I tried to make it a new thing. And I tried to kind of perfect what that was. Um, and then I thought I was there in 2014 when it got rained out. And that was kind of like the heartbreak for me. It was like I just spent three years perfecting this new direction. And I'm like going, oh, I don't know if I can do this again. I don't know if I can start from scratch and create a new identity, a new thing. And like, you know. And because I'd already peaked in 2011. So, yeah, I don't right. know. <laughs> You're like, I've got nothing to prove. Yeah, yeah, totally. I was like, it, it's, it's, real, it's actually, it sucks. It sucks to peak. So it's like, and I, it's funny. I always tell people all the time, it's like, man, you know, enjoy the shittiness of touring. Enjoy those shit shows where five people are there. Enjoy that thing you put out that only 10 people listen to because it's like there's only one way up. It's just like, and then mm. at that point, you're going to come down. And it's just like, you know, when I'd have these really heartbreaking moments on tour overseas when we have no money and I'm living off a dollar a day for like months at a time, it's like I still enjoy every moment of that because I'm like going, okay, it's going to get better from here. And it's like I need to enjoy these soul preparing moments or whatever. It's like... Because, yeah, it's actually, it's a massive mental health issue when you actually achieve the greatest thing you could ever do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, I, mean, I, I, look at, I look at that festival, like, I, I literally, I mean, I spent all year, every day, my entire life just working on this thing. It was a beautiful moment of all, like, just music was so good. I mean, like, and I stumbled on all these things, like, like, Fortet and Caribou just happened to be around and, like, fucking Toy Moy and, like, fucking all those bands who played. It was like, like, the lineup was crazy. The location was just, like, insane like that I'd stumbled upon this agricultural college that hadn't been used in years had an empty swimming pool empty gymnasium all these empty rooms like there will never be a chance when all that stuff comes together and I have the time to spend a year working on a project and organize stupid things like basketball tournaments like um, proms dances you know like you know Dan Deacon like I know it's just everyone it was like it was just epic it was like um and that's fine I've accepted it (laughs) (laughs) it's crazy man like some people be like uh, you shouldn't say that to your peak, but I mean, like, you list all, you list all that, and it is it is a, it would be a peak for anyone's it, it was, it was festival a, it was, career. Yeah, you know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah, totally. And it's like that's that's not a problem. It's like that's why I think people didn't realize when Camp 12, 2012 was for me. It was a completely different festival, you know, like because that was campus, and I was like going, okay, I'm never going to achieve this. I'm going to go back to 
a rural kind of thing, completely restructure it, remove all big names, kind of just focus on like local acts again, kind of like do this completely like back to roots thing, you know, do the old classic like, you know, artist who like, you know, hits their peak and then they try experiments and they go back to their original album because they're like, you know, they want to kind of perfect that again because I never really perfected that. So, um, but no, I never really saw it as a, a problem. I was like going, oh, you know, that was great, man. I like, I literally, there was, I looked at the debrief and I was going, how would I improve this? And I'm like going, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> like, okay. you know, and and it's not often you get to do that with a piece of art you've no. made. And um, I'd done so many things in my life, and I was going, you know, okay, I did that. That was actually, <laughs> yeah, I nailed it. I haven't nailed pretty much anything else I've done in any other field. I've got close, but that was the only thing I actually nailed. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. You know, do, yeah. And so, do you do you find it easy? You seem like you find it mildly easy to at least let go a little bit and move on to the next thing. Is that like a natural thing with you where you get excited yeah, about yeah. the next thing or? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like my my diaries of, and notepads of ideas are just epic. It's like it's, the stuff I haven't done is just there, is what's heartbreaking. It's like um, yeah. generally I always used to give myself three years. So I'd give myself three years to start a project and then see where I could go with it because I, I believe in the trilogy. Like I really believe it's really hard to make a decent quadrilogy. Is that even the word? <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. To, you know, <laughs> like yeah. Uh, I, I feel it with anything. So there's a natural, like there's a time at which the people who are there early at the start will still be there at the end after three years and it gives people enough time to find out about it and and it finds time for those people to leave. So it's like three years is this kind of like natural arc of anything. And I feel that like with any project I've been involved with, there has to be some significant changes within that th- after that three years to like keep kind of interest to the people who started. So, you know, like Alohum, the magazine and tours, that was kind of like a three-year thing. The camps were in kind of cycles of three, like the first three, then there was like the second three, and there's this last three. Um, and it's like kind of everything I've done since, I've always like looked at this three-year period as a significant, okay, I really need to change the momentum, what's happening here. How am I look? How am I working on this project? How am I like targeting this toward people and how can I evolve it? And also to make it interesting for me because you don't want to get stuck in a rut. Same thing like like puppies, puppies, I was toying up, so it ran for like around two years and I was toying up the stage, toying up the idea of doing it for another year. The landlord really wanted me to do it for another year. It was actually really successful. Um, but I looked at like the schedule of things I had to do and I was like, you know what, if I don't end this now, I can't do this tour with the Shocking Pinks overseas. I can't like actually work on this set of 10 books that I wanted to put out. I can't do all these things and run this venue. And so I just had to like end it a little bit early. Yeah, yeah. right. But it was actually, it was the, it was technically the most financially successful regular thing that I've ever done in my life. You know, still think I'm one of the few people, yeah, who I opened a bar to pay back debt. You know, I had a massive debt within the river department of like 25 grand or whatever that I worked up over years. And so I was like, how do I pay this back? And I go, okay, I'm going to fucking open a bar. The one thing I've kind of held off doing for years, you know, so many people opened a bar and got into debt. I think I'm still one of the people who was like, I need to get out of debt. What should I do? I'm going to open a bar. Yeah, I I reread the the book and um, recently and and read that part of it, which I think I'd missed the first time around. And that is pretty incredible. Like the way that you... I mean, it, I, it's just you had really your ideas about how a venue could work are not complicated. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it it's so crazy. It's so it was so great to like be like, here are some simple ideas, and then like here's me putting them into action. Some of them changed, some of them didn't. And then also, oh, I guess it's just a coincidence that it was successful and I also like got myself out of debt by doing it. I mean, I knew that it would work. Like yeah. those things, it was just like really simple. And I mean things I talk about in that book, it's like if more bars had followed my advice, the current situation we're in with the pandemic actually 
you know, I talk so much in their book how it's a venue's responsibility to nurture a music scene. It's like it, you can't just rely on international artists. You can't just rely on national acts. You can't rely on other people to sustain your business. You actually have to grow a community. You have to – so you're going to have bands who have crappy nights. You're going to have these small bands who pull nobody. But it's like you have to keep on bringing more audiences for them. You have to build them up. You Because, like, they'll then keep playing with your venue. They know. They'll, they'll, they know you're the one who helped us. So it's like you have to grow that community. And, like, that's exactly what's happening now. It's like we can't even have – international artists at the moment right now so the venues that are succeeding are the ones that actually did foster mm. a local community they fostered people you know they did things by actually opening at reasonable hours so people actually come along because they actually trust that venue they want to be in that venue they create an environment for that venue so it's like all this stuff isn't rocket science it's like it's so simple it's like you can't rely on other people to sustain your business you have to create it must be really hard for people to see that if you're someone who finds it difficult to set yourself outside of the grain though, right? I, I mean, feel like you're yeah. very, you're very, and I relate to this, like quite comfortable being like, well, this is how I see this. And so, and I think I'm right about this or I'm wrong about this and I'll just do that. There are definitely some people who just go, but if everyone is doing this other way mm. and we're all on, we're all just releasing singles on Spotify and we're all playing at 11 o'clock at night, like, you know, I, I have to do that or else I'm going to miss out on whatever it is and don't think about that. I mean, I guess everything works in the short term, but it's like if anyone wants to be there for a long time and create a new way of doing things, I think you have to look at actually what's not working. And the same thing, it's like going back, okay, what actually works for me? And if working for you isn't, if Spotify and playing 11 o'clock at night isn't working for you, then what does work for you? And then just do that. Yeah. And it's like as long as you stick with it and other, other people will feel the same. Um, yeah, it's an odd one. I um, yeah, so much I look at what I did with that venue, and like I wrote it all down in a book, and it's like, and lots of other venues did kind of follow some of that stuff, and lots of them did um, take on some of those ideas. Um, but it's kind of funny now. It feels like there's a whole generation. It's only been like five years, yeah. But it sort of feels like a whole new generation of kind of like people and venues are out there now. It just feels like it's slipping back into kind of how it was. Um, yeah. Which is a bit, of, which is a bit of a shame. Like I feel that there's not much innovation going on now in the way people are running, um, running shows and bars anymore. Yeah. Do you yeah. think it has anything to do with like the like the rents are, so, are rising and rising and rising? Um, Incomes yeah, are staying the same. Like yeah, but it's like you, you can't blame you can't blame forces out of your control. All you can do is go, okay, so this is an issue. It's costing me more money to run this. So how am I going to make more money? Mm. And it's like, and again, it's the same thing. It's not rocket science. It's like you have to build an audience. So it's like, okay, how do I build an audience? Okay, I make these things popular. I come up with innovative ideas that other people aren't doing, and I grow those ideas. And it's like, it's sometimes things don't work. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm trying this idea. So I've been doing, for, for Synthstrom, this other uh, thing I work with, which we'll be talking about soon, um, I've st I do these online festivals where users submit all their videos and I play them. And I, I've done two of them and they've been free to the viewers. So this is the first one that I'm running uh, next weekend that's actually going to be um, pay to watch. Oh, cool. um, which is, you know, it's a big risk. You know, people are used to watching them for free. And it's like, so I know our viewers are going to take a massive hit and it's like we're going to have way less, but at least people will start getting used to the idea of paying to engage with this kind of content, which I think is really important. I don't think like music should be free so it's like I want okay but then we have to build up from scratch again we've got to take a big hit and then build it from there and it's mm. like maybe it won't work it's like it's very very possible that people will just be like nah 
I just like watching stuff on YouTube for free. Uh, I'm not going to pay to engage with this. And it's like, hey, that's fine, but we've got to give it a shot. Mm. So, I mean, I'm always happy to take risks. And, and when you're running a venue like this, people too instantly go, okay, I just, I just need the hits. Like, get me the big bands. Get me the, that are going to fill up the venue. But it's like, going, okay, they're going to play with you once and then it's, you're too small for them. They'll just go play at the next bigger venue. What you have to do is you have to grow that artist. It's actually, you're going to get way more growth and money and income from a band who's play, who starts playing to 10 people, but then they do 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, 100, 120, 130, 140, 150, 160 at your venue, then you're going to get somebody who plays, plays there once at 140 and then never comes back. Yeah. So it's like your people are too desperate for the sh- – and that, that's the problem with like, you know, looking for money. You're like going, okay, I have this band play, but you don't think about, okay, I want this to last for this amount of time. I need it to be a sustainable income. Having small income at the start's okay as long as that can grow. But then you'll grow that community, you'll grow that love, you'll grow that support. And it's like, and and you'll feel a better person. You're not just engaging with like the popular artists, you're actually like engaging with people who are true and passionate and, you know, and they respect that you care about them. Um, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think that that's innovative thinking. To me, it just feels real obvious mm. that you don't, you don't go for the top right away, that it doesn't make sense. Because yeah. then they won't care. It's like, you know, the, the few big substantial artists I had play at camp, it's just like, one of my favorite things about camp was becoming friends with the bands. And it's like, when you're dealing with someone's booking agent, you're not even, so they'll just turn up at the festival and you haven't even got to like bro with them. You, like you don't, you know, you don't know what they're into. You haven't, you haven't, got, you haven't got, so it's kind of like this awkward meeting them. Whereas it's like, you know, there'll be a small band from Dunedin or whatever that I'll deal with. And it's like, you know, heaps of emails back and forth and they'll come, they'll be at the event and I'll, we'll, it'll just be all hugs. And it'll be like, oh, thanks so much for coming. You know, they're so stoked. And it's like, that's way more enjoyable to me than some large artist who I don't care about, who I have no rapport with, who's just simply playing because they happen to be in the country and they're a cool artist. Yeah. I mean, that said, only a couple of times in the whole history of all my festivals was that a thing. Because generally my rule was never deal with booking agents. If I can't speak with the artist, I won't book you. But there are like a couple of artists that I like bent on that just right. because like, wow, why would I not have this artist play? Um, but yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, it's it. It's about having fun. It's like you can't just go for making money. You have to actually enjoy the process. Yeah, and you're, yeah. you seem very driven by community and community is very driven by physical spaces. And I think the reason a lot of people still talk about camp other than it, on a technical level, being like a great festival, is that this is really interesting, eh? Because we've given no context to this conversation to someone who's maybe listening who has no idea what camp even is. Fuck them. <laughs> Do your research. Yeah, Google, go, Google Camp Alohum. Ask, ask someone. Yeah, yeah, there's my audience is either in the know or they've already tuned out, and yeah. and fuck them, they miss yeah, out. Yeah, fair enough. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that why it's so important for a lot of people, like I've said to a few friends, I'm like, oh, Ian's coming on. And they were like, ask about camp. And I think the reason a lot of them say that is because it was a rare time in New Zealand where quite con- uh, consistently it was a physical space that allowed cross-germination of the musical um, influences from all the different cities. Because you'd most often there'd be people there from every... New Zealand city, every New Zealand town, actually hanging out and like you said, broing down mm. and meeting one another. And that hardly even happens within some of the scenes in the cities, let alone like between cities. So I, th- I, I and, and as I've started this podcast, more and more people, just through repetition, I've noticed how many people talk about physical spaces and talk about um, what kind of connectivity and community that actually allows to have. So that's kind of when, when I was like, why do people talk about camp like, uh, as, as, as far as it being great? That's the kind of 
best idea I have about it. And it's, I mean, that, that, yeah. that was literally the reason it came together. It wasn't even for me to do a festival, it was just for me to throw a party for all these tours that I've been doing that I was like, I can't keep traveling around the country all month, every month. And I was like going, why didn't I bring all these people together? It's like all these people who are like hanging, coming parties in Dunedin, Christchurch, Auckland, Nelson, Barrytown, wherever. Why don't I just bring them all together and we just have a big party and everyone gets to hang out. Yeah. And then, you know, all these bands who are like been paying attention to this other bands work online, they go, oh, you know, and because like, it wasn't happening. So that the, the thing that realised that I was like, yeah, this has worked, is that first night of camp, the very first one, 2007, before any band started playing, because it was just the first night everyone arrives, and people just run around screaming, having the time of their lives. People were running up to me going, this is the greatest thing ever. And I'm like going, it hasn't actually started yet. It starts tomorrow <laughs> yeah. at 11 a.m. And, and it hadn't, hadn't dawned on me that it's like going, you know what, yeah, it's simply about bringing people together. You know, like I knew that the idea of not announcing bands was kind of like, so at the time there were lots of reasons between not, for me not announcing bands. One of the key reasons is that I hadn't actually booked any bands yet and I just simply knew I was going to throw a party. <laughs> right. And I was like going, you know what, like, I was just like, I didn't, it wasn't a big deal to me. I was just like, trust me, I've just been touring for the last three years. You know the bands I like. What is the big deal? I'm just putting on a party. Yeah. Just turn up. There'll be some sweet bands. And um, I didn't I didn't think it was a big deal. But like a whole bunch of people are going, oh my God, he's doing this festival. He's not announcing any bands. I'm like going, but you know what I like. I it literally is just weird released. what people find <laughs> weird, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was like, I've just toured, <laughs> I've toured 70 bands. Look at the names of all the bands I've toured. It'll probably be mostly them or bands that are like them. Yeah, it's funny because it turned <laughs> yeah. those booklets at the at the gate, it turned them into like these little Bibles because it was like a, your moment of discovery of what was about to happen as well as like a talisman. My, my, my favourite moment was everyone looking through them and being disappointed because <laughs> like, you know, I'd look at them, yeah. there'd be pieces rip open though, they'd go, oh, who's oh, never heard of any of these bands. I'll be like, that's the point. Yeah. It's like, and don't worry, in three days' time, they'll all be your favourites. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, it was always cool because there'd always be these rumours floating around about some, you know, some band that might be playing or whatever and then they wouldn't be playing and it'd be, there'd be this initial disappointment and then, but after three days, everyone's like, oh, man, that was awesome. Yeah, you can't you deny know? the experience really, can you? Yeah, I mean, because I've always, you know, yeah, as you say, it's about space. It's like, you know, if you put a sweet punk band in a tiny room and you have them play in the middle of the middle of the room on the floor with like fuck all lighting and you have rafters so people can climb in the rafters above the band it's like it literally doesn't matter who that band is if they're loud and they've got a good drummer it's just it doesn't even matter yeah so it's like when i book artists i book artists on experience so i mean like i'll book and go, okay i it's not necessarily like yeah it has nothing to do with how popular they are i'm like going okay can they create the experience that i want so you know when i look at all the stages i have i go okay i have all these so i initially i'll go okay who are my 20 favorite bands in the country right now? Okay, I'll book all of them. Go, okay, where, do, where is the best place? Okay, this place, this band should play at 7 p.m. by the lagoon because they sound like this and they'd be perfect for that. Now, I look at all the spots that are missing. I go, okay, so I've got a 3 a.m. spot in the forest on the second night. Okay, so probably most likely a whole bunch of people might be coming down at that stage. You know, they'll still have a bit of energy left, blah, blah, blah. They want to party. It's not the last night, but there's not that whole last night I'm going to party all night vibe. So it's like, you know, I've got to pick a band that's going to work in that moment or the artist that I know will actually have the energy to do that or whatever. And then I'll, I'll be plotting various paths. So it's like I have one path that's like for people who actually want to like come down from like 10 o'clock, one path for people who like want to keep peaking until like 1, 2 a.m. Then people I know who are going to want to get up at 10 a.m. the next morning, others who aren't going to get up till like 1 or whatever. There's always multiple paths and it's like, so I just I, I draw on this timetable and I, I just I describe the the effect that I want people to have or, or that I want this artist to have, and um, or you know what what route the the audience is going on, and then I try to find an artist to fill that 
Because the, so the names right. of the artists is pretty much irrelevant. It's simply just like the vibe of that artist at that particular moment. Who's going to play at sundown on this stage? Mm. You know, who is going to work for that? And so, and I think that's why like festivals get it so wrong. How they just like again they'll pop the oh the most popular artists you play at the end and then like the, the least popular artists you play first. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, you know, um, I've, you know, like Leno Lovecraft who played, I think in 2011, you know, he played his very, very first show ever after Caribou. <laughs> like, you know, I was like, oh, but I was just like, look at lineup. And I was like, going, okay, people are going to be ready to lose their minds. They just need something that's absolutely party and just like, just off the wall. They want to bounce. They're going to, it's crazy. And I was like, and I know at that point I'd used a lot of it. I was trying to hold some stuff in reserve. And I was like, going, okay, this is a bit of a risk. He's never played a live show before, but screw it. It's like, I know he's going to bring it, you know? Um, and yeah, it went off. People went nuts. Are you good at turning, because like, that's a lot of conceptualizing. Mm. Are you good at like, turning that conceptualizing off when you're going around to actually check the vibes and be in the moment and do the vibes or is it kind of always going? Um, I mean, at that point, when, when the event's running, I'm, so this is another thing I learned pretty early on is that spend money to enjoy the work that you've created. It's like, you know, this first couple of festivals, I was again, just, you know, it's that whole thing of, God, we're so DIY that we'll do we'll do the most stupid thing to save ten bucks, and it's like you know. So I'll just like I'll, I'll spend all year plotting this thing in my head, and then just to save a couple hundred dollars, I'll just do all the work myself at the event and like run generators around, do all this stuff. I'm like what? It took me like four years to realize why don't I just pay someone to do that and actually just enjoy this thing that I spend all this time working on. Um, and it, yeah, it's dumb, but it's a stupid thing as Kiwis do. It's just like we're so obsessed with scraping little bits of money together that we don't look at the big picture and go, oh, you know what? I should just sit back and enjoy this project and realize that, oh, you know, I'm going to pay some money to someone. It's like, and it's because it's the hardest stage of any project is that point where you're doing okay financially and then you realize, okay, but if I pay someone now to help out, that's going to take me right back to square one again. But the thing is, you can't grow without going back there again. So That's long-term, short-term thinking yeah, yeah, again, yeah. yeah. So you have to bring on staff. You have to pay people. And you've got to pay them well if you want good people. So that did, yeah. What's the most you nailed the vibe of, of your like, you're like, I thought that I knew this would oh. bloody work and I'm here and it's fucking going off. Uh, like Karen, Karen J. Callanan, basically. Like that was an artist who like, even in Australia at the time, that was probably one of the biggest finds I did. Like I, I saw him playing in 2012 to an audience of like four people in, um, in, God, I can't remember where. It wasn't a main, it wasn't a main city anyway. Um, and uh, something like Adelaide. Anyway. <laughs> no, that's just Disney Adelaide, not calling Maine City. You know what I mean? like, to, we to, know. People yeah, yeah. who have been to Adelaide know yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not. Basically, it was not Sydney or Melbourne. So. <laughs> um, anyway, so, oh, Newcastle. Anyway, um, so yeah, I, I saw him playing. I was just like, okay, yeah, this is going to blow people's minds the way he's performing if I have him like at dusk, you know, and it's like I have this just smoke machine, one laser. So I, I, I had him play this show on my, I've never seen any artist do this. So it's like, Anyone who's watched him understands that he's a performative genius anyway, but he he responds to the smoke machine. And this is something that I've never seen anyone else do. It's like he'll he'll know when the smoke is starting to rise up his body and he'll sink back into it. He'll move, he'll skulk around in it, he'll he'll like lower himself down, he'll move with the direction that the smoke's firing. All the while, while like controlling all his crazy arsenal of pedals, like delivering this crazy performance. And it's like going, I saw that and I was like, this guy is genius. And it's like I've never seen anything like it. And we didn't even discuss that. Because I knew that it's like the moment I tell him 
oh, can you do what I just saw you do? Or can you engage? I was like, that will ruin it. And so it was incredible. And like, it blew, I've never seen people cry at the festival for during performance other than when he played. And it was just wow. like, it was crazy. Like it actually, it made him bigger in New Zealand faster than Australia. It's just like those shows at camp when he played in 2012, I guess it was. He like, his, his, brand, his name got really, really big here really fast. It was a big statement. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, like he just it blew people's, like people ran, so his second performance, so he played that first performance, maybe there was like 150, 200 people there. His next show was just packed. And again, so I do this with it. So I knew with artists who make impacts like that, have their first performance on a small stage and their second one on a larger stage, the ones who I know are going to do that. And this his second performance was by the Lagoon, I think it was like earlier in the day or whatever, and it was just jam-packed. And he finished playing and he said, oh, I've got some merch in the um, room. Oh, sorry, i got some records in the merch room. And people were running. like, And there was like um, this girl I knew, I saw just throw some money at a friend who got up and just said, buy me anything. And, she, <laughs> and it was like, it was amazing. I've never seen that. Like, and because he's such a genius, like he understands about how to create, uh, so he wouldn't hype up his act, but he, so he, he didn't play until the second day. He spent the entire first day just skulking around camp in a set of fingerless gloves and boxer shorts. And there was all he was wearing, just like topless, just like walking around. No one knew who the heck this guy was, but like they'd seen a photo of him and like the guys people would talk about, oh, who's this Karen J. Kelly? Who's this creepy weird guy? So it's like, there was already enough interest when his first show came. And then right. like, and then everyone was watching it going, oh man, this identity makes so much sense with what I've heard about this weirdo. So it was like, it just, you know, the the commitment to his craft was so far beyond what many people were doing. And that's right. why he made such an impact. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. funny that you mentioned like the whole, like that reminded me of the double show thing. So that reminded me of the Tori Moi. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the oh. garden and then up on the stage, I think, which was crazy. It was, in, for me, that was my like incredible how the fuck is he here in New Zealand playing? Because I think that first album had kind of just come out and it was fucking yeah, so it was good. Yeah, I can't even remember how that came together. You know, that was another one that was just like magic. And those guys loved it, man. Eh? They loved that party. Eh? And well, I mean, I, I've, yeah. I've, like that's, uh, you know, coming back to Synthstrom again, you know, like Chaz submitted a bunch of samples to the, when I released that a few years later and we've kept in touch. And I mean, I um, caught up with those guys in LA a couple of years later. And I mean, they've, they've told all their friends about it. I mean, they just like, you know, they didn't want to leave. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. the, I wanted to ask about the set and setting thing and this actually gets into synthstrom and electronic music a lot more they, and it's interesting you saying I did camp in at least a small part because you wanted to see music in different settings mm. and that's a big thing that I'm quite frustrated with at the time uh, at the time now where I, I'm like I have to go downstairs into a box and see bands with basically kind of the same uh, stuff, the same context essentially at the same time all the time when the music and the vibe can be completely not that and it really frustrates me. Not, not that it has to be there but there aren't options for the people who that doesn't necessarily suit their music. Um, do you, have you ever, th do, do you think it's possible to create essentially venues in New Zealand that recreate a one part of camp and operate as an actual business, like an open venue, say like something that is outdoor and day, or these things. Yeah. So is this just something we can't do in New Zealand, and that's why it's not happening? I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've definitely like spitballed those ideas. Yeah. And like, can I do this radical venue that actually just has shows at like you know one pm in the afternoon in like a beautiful dappled light forest setting, and it's always like folk artists, and it's always like one pm till three pm every Sunday or whatever. You know, like I've, I've, I've definitely like toyed with those ideas, and it's like, um, you know, like there's amazing venues I've been overseas you know there's like venues and camps there's like you know tons of venues on boats there's like venues up mountains there's like you know there's really uh, inspiring things um 
But and I talk about it in my book and I'm like, you know, New Zealand has such a problem with drinking and it being you can't go to a show without drinking mm-hmm. that it's like, you know, I tried, I tried to fight that with puppies and that I made alcohol such a small part of attending the shows that, you know, there, there's no, no advertising anywhere. Um, you know, I, I, I tried to make the bar itself as dark as possible and the stage as bright as possible that you just wouldn't even look at the bar that you'd come in and you'd just watch the music. Um, and it kind of backfired in a way because I made the drinks really cheap as well. So mm-hmm. it kind of ended up being this great place to drink. Um, but I don't know. It's like I talk to so many people and they'll be like, going, oh man, you know, I, I have to drink if I go to a show. It's like they can't, they, it, it's so dry. And, and it's, it's, it's a New Zealand thing. It's like, you know, it's a New Zealand, like Australia, uh, English thing. It's like it doesn't, doesn't happen everywhere. No. Um, and it's a bummer because the alcohol industry owns the music industry and it's like trying to disassociate those two. And so for me, putting on an artist in a forest, like for me, I don't, I don't want to put a bar in there. I'm like, going, I just want yeah. people to come and chill out. Like, you know, bring some drinks from home if you have to. But it's like, I'd rather, I'd rather supply water, you know, or like some drinks some juice or whatever it's like but yeah kiwis are just obsessed with drinking and, I, and I've, I've tried to i've tried to work it out and I, I still think it has to do a little bit with our kind of like inferiority already complex with overseas that it's just like we there's this thing that we're good at and so we're just going to keep doing it it's just like you know even though it's like the worst thing in the world to be the best at it's yeah. just like you know honestly it doesn't take skill to get drunk so i don't know why everyone's so obsessed with doing it all the time like you know but i mean yeah we're fucking good at it we yeah. are we're we're a laughing stock of the world it's like new zealand's one of the new zealand australia is some of the only countries to get banned from even having stalls at like wine and food festivals because we're terrible people right? the, the walkabout i'm like we're, we're the worst it's like we're such drunken idiots. I like, remember being you know? so embarrassed every Waitangi day and when I was living in London and they'd oh. do that big fucking pub crawl and I was like, I'm so fucking embarrassed to be yeah. like... I, I, don't, I don't get how... I mean, yeah, you know, there's lots of like theories around, you know, six o'clock closing and, you know, that kind of stuff about how we got here and, you know, rugby racing and beer. It's like it's part of our culture. I don't get why it still is. I don't get why we haven't moved on from that, you know. I remember when, when I tour bands overseas sometimes, like the drunkest people in the room are Kiwis and it's really embarrassing, you know. I'm like going, people don't drink like this. You know? And we like, don't put pressure... Yeah. We don't call out the fact that we are... Like it's it's even well, because, because we don't know because we haven't left here. It's not until you go to Europe and you're like going, oh, this is why they sell beer at McDonald's and the drinking age is 16 because they don't get fucked up yeah. every opportunity. They actually know how to handle themselves. And you know, when they're drinking, they'll drink because they enjoy it and they'll drink a little bit. They'll get tipsy. But it's like New Zealand definitely has a habit of that unnecessary beer. You'll just keep going. You know, and I mean, I tried to do what I could to take away the allure allure of drinking with watching but I, I definitely couldn't I, you know and I talk about in the book I try to create a sustainable business model that wasn't reliant on alcohol but it's really hard because and, you know. and by the way the, the book we are referencing is right. uh, 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 oh god the, I, the whole title I've got it on my Kindle it's um, uh, what's wrong with the New Zealand music industry three dots and then and how to fix it no, close close because uh, I, I ripped off Steve Albini's um uh, essay from 2000 and whatever about which is amazing people should read it where he talks about basically like the problem with the music industry and like why it's geared towards labels right um, anyway so I called this uh, the problem with music in New Zealand and how to fix it mm. and then there's a second part of the book and why I started and ran puppies yes so it's like there's two books within the one and you can and, get um, them at aloham.com uh, yeah aloham.com it's just like you can just download it for free or whatever you, can, you know um, yeah yeah, just in case. I think because I think people should read that. So there'll be one. I'll actually give them and, some context on. Nice. They can and, have. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. can have that one. And, and it's an easy book. It's ten essays, and each essay you can read in like five minutes. Very easy to read. Yeah. Very easy to read. And they're um, just like yeah. 
De- so, but now you're moving into like, you know, Synstrom and the Deluge and it's all um, very, it is electronic based in a broad sense. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, is that moving more into the belly of the beast with the live things of like, you know, there's, there's a lot more uh, context it seems with electronic music to be even later at night and even uh, more hedonistic in certain ways. Like, do you, have you, do you, what's your experience of like the, uh, the electronic scene and its own, in its own insular thing compared to, you know, you've experienced a whole bunch of different mm. scenes and, and countries. I mean- I guess the scene that we're more targeted to really is people who make music and create music. I mean, like, you know, I'd say maybe 15% of our audience is actively performing. Um, you know, like there's some big right. players in there um, and, you know, some medium, but it's like most people are like making music or they have studios or they're using it to like create ideas with to like make music on their um, on their bus rides into their job or like, you know, at home, you know. It's like I think a lot of people will like, like me, you know, if they love music, they don't necessarily have to make a career out of it. Well, you know, so I have to, but it's like, so, I mean, so for me, like, so there's a way of dif- separating your hobby from your career. And I think a lot of pe- a lot of our audience go, oh, you know what? I enjoy making music. I'm going to keep on making music and make it for the rest of my life. But I understand that to have it as a career is really difficult. So I'm not going to even go down that route. I'm just going to love it and enjoy it. Mm. But my job is going to be this. Um, and I think a lot of our audience is that. And I think internationally, a lot, a lot more people are like that, you know. Mm. I think a lot of people don't actually look. They they look at the arts very practically. They like, you know, they've been brought up to think of arts as going, okay, arts is something you do with your spare time. It's not a possible career option, uh, which is cool that in New Zealand we, it's so difficult here. It's like these are even people from bigger countries where you can eat more easily create a career. In New Zealand, it's so difficult to create a career in the arts, but yet the, we're so passionate about doing it. It's like I love that about us, and I think that's why we have so many great people here is that people are just like, no, fuck the difficulty. I don't care. I'm going to stick with this. I am not just going to like give it two years and then just go do this shitty job I hate. I'm going to spend the next 20 years of my life giving this a shot. Yeah. You know, um, and I don't think that's a large attitude overseas. I think it's a, I think it's a pretty New Zealand thing. Yeah. You know, right. Well, you know, not just New Zealand, but you know. And, and the, the deluge, which is the main instrument um, that I'm yeah. definitely familiar with. It's such an integral, exciting part of, if people don't know, like there's a really big live electronic music um, thing that's been happening for like the last five to 10 years, maybe even more that I, I, that's all that I'm aware of where a whole bunch of really interesting, innovative companies have been making um, uh, a lot of hardware that can work together with today's technology that makes some fucking crazy good electronic things like that. Mm. I, I quit my band because I, I got into it and ended up buying a Digitact. And essentially just producing all my music on that, um, which has been really, really interesting. But it's such a huge world. And I think there is, it's funny that you talk about community because out of all the scenes, I did bunny ears in the the air there, um, that I've never felt more wholesome or like connected than that live electronic music scene because yeah. you can just go. It's so internet based. Oh, everyone's yeah. everyone's it's, slightly older, which is kind of nice. It's it's a crazy community. I mean, I don't even get how it got like that. Like I've tried to work out the etymology of why the synth community took to Facebook in particular, but you know, lots of other groups and online forums. It's nuts. It's like I remember when we um, added the looping feature to the Deluge and released that. I I spent a lot of time investigating the guitar kind of community. And it just blew me away because no one talks, no, no, you know, there'll be like 
um, you know, Facebook pages, you know, Guitar World magazine or whatever, where they'll have like an epic amount of like people who follow that page, like, you know, like hundreds of thousands or like millions, right? But each post they'll do will get like three likes or, you know, there's been no engagement because no one cares, you no. know. There'll be like forums or like, uh, you know, all these Facebook groups I joined because I was like trying to work out, okay, which communities do I want to kind of let them know about looping? No one cares. No one's chatting. It's like, you know, the biggest YouTube channels don't even touch anywhere near the channels that the synth will do. But the thing is when you look at the – Ah oh, man, I, I I don't want to quote the numbers now because I'd sound like an idiot. But there are numbers of how many guitars per year are sold, and it's phenomenal. Like it's so giant, it's just crazy. And then compared with like a popular synthesizer, it's just it blows anything out of the water. Like the the guitar scene is substantially like bigger. Yeah, it's like comparing um, you know in New Zealand rugby with like softball. It's just like it's just not even comparable. You know. Um, so, but online, it's completely different. Yeah. It's like, you know, and, and it's, it's bizarre and it makes the difference. It means like you can get a start as a young company. You know, we didn't have any money when we first started, but it didn't matter. It's like we just had to like create a presence on these communities and that just spreads. Everybody who's interested in synthesizers, making music on drum machines, whatever, they're all online. It's like, you know, whereas with guitars, people are just, they're actually just in bands or they're making, they're not, they're not talking about it necessarily online. No. They, they're not joining communities because they're just like, oh yeah, I want to sound like this band. I want to just make music with my friends. But online, with synths, people like want to know how their gear works. So yeah. it's like this kind of thing. It's like with guitars, you're like going, oh yeah, I strum these strings. Six strings. It's like whatever. <laughs> Do I use a humbucker? Whatever. It's like these are the huge, huge questions you have as a guitarist. But with this, you're like, oh my God, what is, uh, what is sample and hold? What does this latch key do? Like, the you know, fucking technology. What is, CV, what is gate? You know, like, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the technology of it is so interesting yeah, just on yeah. a level. And, and that's even before you start getting to like, well, we're going to combine this technology with this technology. It's crazy. Oh, man, totally. And like the, the synth world is constantly trying to do new things. Whereas I guess in, you know, I mean, there's like interesting guitar pedals. And I guess those are probably actually the biggest communities online is actually the guitar pedal communities online. But the thing is, funny enough, when, it, when a guitar pedal has a synth, like works for synths, it blows up. Yeah. It's like way more people interested in it oh, and yeah. talking about it online when it will work for, um, yeah. Basically, it's a, it's a fascinating, weird little thing. Yeah, and I love it because it's, it's somehow more, it's, it's more artistic for me, that's just my opinion, because it's focused on the process and the, and the tools as opposed to necessarily what the finished outcome actually ends up being. Mm. Because especially when you start drifting even more into like the modular or like the actual performance live mm. electronic music, it's so intangible. But a lot of people don't even record the, Oh, yeah. The jams, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which to me is the, is the actual simplest form of the enjoyment of the music you're making. Whereas like things like guitars and all that stuff, they kind of force into the spots of like, yeah, but what are you creating? Like where's the song you wrote? I mean, there's definitely tons of memes for years that have like, you know, you know, guys who were interested in guitar pedals in the 2000s, now they've all switched to modular. Yeah. You know? So it's basically, it's basically, it's the same thing. It it's is. like, it's, you know, modular is the guitar pedal of the 2020s. But, um, you know, yeah, it's definitely... That I love because that's always been my favorite thing about, you know, and I talk about in the book as well, my DJ sets. Like I I'd hate doing the same thing over and over again. You know, when I did a live remix of a song, like I talk about, you know, I well, so I did release it actually as my one of my pseudonyms. I had many pseudonyms. One of my pseudonyms <laughs> was Jesus HTML Christ. And um, and I'm pretty sure it's still online, but I'm pretty sure there's a SoundCloud account that all it has on it is a live recording I did of the remix of Royals, Lord's Royals, like the day it came out. And I just did this like kind of like 20, 15, 15 minute kind of like remix, just jamming, like, you know, no, nothing constructed. It was all just like looping parts and like breaking them up and whatever. And um, 
I love, I can never repeat it. It's like whenever I have a good idea and I'm jamming, it's like, oh, I will never ever be able to achieve that again. It's like when people are going crazy, it's like nothing's, I go, I, that's it. You got to enjoy that moment and this crazy cut up between these two songs, this wild four different effects on this track, five effects on this song, this being cut, this being looped at that exact moment. But it's like that will never ever happen again. Um, and that's why most of my sets I play on the Deluge are like, I reckon 70% improvised, you know, like I'll have the basic like clips constructed, I'll know the samples I'm going to use, but there will be no structure. There will be like, like no, I don't know what effects I'm going to play at any time. I don't know how I'm going to play it. And because I play it with one hand and the other hand kind of like holding it while I'm performing because I hold it in my hand, um, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And it's like every time I play it differently and that's kind of cool. It's like sometimes you're like embarrassed um, and especially if there's a room full of people and your kind of job is to keep them dancing, it kind of gets a bit of a bummer sometimes. You're like, oh shit, if I take risks here, it's like this could totally kill this party. Um, so as long as you have enough tricks in your bag to like uh, save a shit moment and I think that's a key thing it's like you have to be prepared for crap to happen to have those magical moments one of my favourite ever moments at a live show um, was cassette playing at San Fran Bathhouse and the power went out and um, everyone was like, no. <laughs> and it's like, so there's like, there like, there like five second moment where it's like the band were just kind of like looking at each other. Oh shit, what do we do? And so obviously the venue's running around trying to switch the power on. But then the drummer just like goes, oh fuck it. And just like keeps playing the song. And it's just like then like, you know, I mean, obviously there's no more, you can't hear in the instrumentation, but the lead, uh, the guitarist and the bass player just kind of like start dancing along on the stage. And then suddenly everyone in the audience just starts copying them and starts dancing them because there's this new moment. There's this new dynamic that's created. And like, so then there's this, insane, and that lasts for maybe like, about a minute and then the power just comes on there's this like and you like the lights come on like the the, the amps switch on then they just blast into the fucking song at the exact moment and the crowd just goes yeah. shit. like I'd barely ever seen a crowd go like that wild for anything and then so from then on from that moment of the show everyone's so much more engaged because like they saw something that they weren't expecting so for me I kind of just have this like okay I, on the back of my deluge I have like this piece of paper that's taped to it and it just has like five or six ideas for if I get lost or if I get stuck it's right. like going okay do this and so it's like I don't have a set list I don't like have I don't know how I'm going to play songs but it's like going okay when you get stuck crank the layup full and then just like ride the cutoff filter or like you know like you know make everyone's ears bleed and then like add stutter and like cut it up and then like stop the machine and let it play out so I have this like thing called like you know delay, delay scam or whatever so it's like I just know at some point if it's like if I make a total ass of myself I'm just gonna like throw that shit on but I get to do that once so mm. it's like you can't do that at the end of every song. Yeah, so like, okay. yeah, yeah. And then and, you know, and then I'll have these like little tricks where it's like like performative tricks, you know, where it's like, you know, if you do things, even though you're sounding really crappy and you've made big mistakes, people will forget about that because they'll just get lost in what you're doing as a performer. Um I mean, I've learned lots from obviously watching tons of bands over the years and how they deal with things and you know, like seeing the ideas they play, but it's like yeah, I think you have to take a risk to have a great show. It's like if you just recycle the same performance, you get bored of playing those same songs. If you do the same things night after night, you hate what you're doing. It becomes a job. It's like the audience always responds the same way. If you decide to improvise and if you go, okay, I don't know how I'm going to end this song, well, let's not decide. Let's just go for it and we'll decide on the night. Then I think that leads to some of the most beautiful moments and my favourite shows are always that. You know. I can imagine a few people listening to this and shitting their pants at the idea of having to like not have their set it's, completely worked out. You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Because it oh, is, man. it's scary. And this thing is, and, and a lot of the times it will suck. And that's to say, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you just have to have, you have to have backup plans for when it faults. But the thing is, but you never say you made a mistake. You know, that's the worst thing. If you can, if you, if you make it look bad, then the audience is going, oh, this person's shit. But it's like, you just like move on or you just like, you turn that mistake into something good. I mean, it's so funny. Like when I toured Neil Finn's band um, two summers ago, 
the most obviously one of the most legitly group of talented people you'll ever freaking meet you know but they they would still do like a one hour rehearsal for every soundtrack was this right? for like, the towns one yeah yeah, yeah. For like small towns i toured like neil and finn around new zealand and um and they had it was like a band of like nine people or so and just amazing musicians the kind you know neil's not going to work with non amazing musicians right like they're great um you know and they would still do a pretty like you know reliable one hour sound check they'd play the same songs every night the few times they went off script were mind-blowing because it's like man have faith like have faith in that band it's like that band's not gonna screw it up it's like you know and those were the, the, the most magical moments i mean i guess especially from people like me who see the same show night after night so it's like we know how that song's gonna go so when a song doesn't go that way and it was for them it was always a mistake or well, something they didn't intend or like they decided to play a cover on that morning it's, it's always magic um yeah i don't know I'd, I'd like to see bands take more way more risks and i always want it so whenever i hear songs live i'm like even if i love that song i want to hear it for longer it's like whenever i always want the live version to be longer i don't care if you, yeah if you do that outro like two for four bars in the original chord fucking give me like 16 bars it's like man it's like and then and then stop it and then do a false ending and then fucking come back in with another verse and then hit that chorus even longer it's just like man, i love like, that shit. you know man dude like, that's what we want to see that's why we went to see it live we did not go to see the album played we just listened to the album at home it's like i want to i want to hear it played differently um my favorite thing about Over the Atlantic when I toured them, it's like live. It was, I mean, it was kind of a disappointment for a lot of people. Some people would like, you know, live, they'd be this like band that was like basically like The Cure uh, meets like kind of Belter Space with just like, I mean, it's like, you know, sonically huge, but also just like super 80s, lots of chorus. It's like this and like really dynamic and rhythmic and danceable. But the record, people would get home, they're going, oh, this is kind of reminiscent of like the postal service or kind of like it's like downbeat electronica. And I'd be like, yeah, it's great. And the live band is great. Yeah, yeah. They don't have to sound the same. It's They're like, two oh, different you know, things. Oh, man, totally. And so, so two different things. There's barely anything more different than Over the Atlantic Live to what they are in record. And there was no effort to recreate those songs. Like, it was just like, oh, well, live we made it on, like, laptops and guitar, and now we have drums, bass, and guitar. So let's just do whatever. You know, we'll just keep the lyrics the same and kind of, like, sort of some of the progressions, but pff, whatever. Just make, rewrite these songs. Just fucking have, stop. I think... If I could sum up uh, your ethos with with that, it's kind of a bit like stop taking yourself and don't take anything you do that seriously. Just I'm, like do it properly. But like there's always the edges. You don't have to worry about the edges. Just just yeah, do yeah. it. Oh, no, no, totally. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Or you just regret. Yeah. It's like, you know, and the thing is, and then you just – you over agonize all the little mistakes you made because if you're trying to reach perfection constantly and you never get there and you and you agonize about it as opposed to just going there naturally it's like going yeah i'm gonna make mistakes and like i said man honestly you don't want to peak peaking sucks yeah so it's like you know just enjoy enjoy the crap you know i mean yeah um you know yeah i mean it's it's tough it's tough you know when you're a band i mean honestly and no one has more experience of being attending shitty shows than me. I mean, like, I don't even know how many shows I've been to now. It's like, it doesn't even make sense. Also, shows that I've promoted. I'm pretty sure I've promoted more shows than, like, any person in history. And, um, and I've, I've had so many crap shows. And it's like, and it's tough for me. You know, I watch the band play, you know, I'll be in some crazy little small town in America and, you know, there's, like, four people in the audience or whatever and there's, like, there's five people on stage. And it's just like, you know, <laughs> you're like, yeah, yeah, this sucks, you know. Um, but it's like it's funny, like some of the worst shows I have are still the best because that's when the band goes, you know what, fuck it, you know, like let's just let's just have fun. Who cares? Like we you know we'll just like we'll 
do a different set order, we'll play a song we haven't played before. And that's when they always have more fun. And it's like, then everybody in the show buys a record, you know. And music um, should probably be fun. Yeah, and it's like, you know what, you're going to have those bad moments, but you're also going to have some uh, some cool moments. But it's like, unless you take those risks and those bad moments, and then, then that's what it should be for. It should be like going, oh, you know what, hey, look, let's just do something different tonight. Let's like be crazy. Um, because, you know, you, you never learn that shit in practice. You never learn that shit in rehearsal. It's like, you know, um, or then you try to recreate it live. And then that never works. So it's like you just have to try new things. You yeah. know, like, yeah, you can never recreate magic. It's like you can just tr- try new magic. That is you know? very strong advice. <laughs> yeah, Ian, yeah. I feel like we could uh, you, we could be talking about stuff forever, but you actually, you're a busy man. You actually have things to do. I have stuff to do. Um, so yeah. before you go, do you have any plugs you would like to – is there anything coming up that you're doing that people can uh, pay attention to? Or like uh, you did mention the Sintstrom yeah, Festival yeah, 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 yeah. next weekend. This comes out on Sunday. So is that this coming? Is okay, this so you'll probably have just missed the online festival, which I think so in New Zealand time, I think it's Sunday like 9 a.m. or something. So Yeah, this comes out at 2 p.m. Is ah, it going to so be archived for people to yeah, watch? Yeah, so I mean there's a couple of them archived on our YouTube channel now, um, youtube.com slash Synthstrom Audible. Um, there's the early ones archived. In about a week or so time, this one will be archived. But it's the same thing. It's like if you haven't seen the first couple, just watch the first couple. It's all the same. It's just people playing the same synth. But it's like they're really, it's just really nice because it's a cool community vibe. I mean the chatting, online is the thing I like about the most. People right. just coming together and like being there, talking about each video, like, you know, the artists are in each video there. And for a lot of them, it might be the first time they've actually had like direct feedback and like this nervous moment where people are watching them for like five minutes and then like talking about it. And, you know, it's like, that's a beautiful thing for me. And I think that's why people engage with them so much. Um, but no, I don't really have anything else going on. I mean, I, I'm still broken from the tour that I had to cancel due to coronavirus that, you know, I spent six months working the, on. Which was then, the Sinstrom yeah, tour, like a, right? Like a, that, was, looked, that was so cool. Yeah, that was such yeah. a cool idea, man. Like, yeah, man. It, it was brutal. Like, you know, I had like 200 artists around the world playing at it, you know, like at least 100 of them doing their first ever shows, you know, and like 35 shows in like 13 different countries. And um, I just, you know, I'd spent ages and we'd, we'd already done all the marketing, everything had started to advertise. And then we got through six shows, I think. Um, we got through, you know, New Zealand and uh, East Coast, uh, West Coast of Australia. East well, you, Coast of Australia. And you got Cuckoo uh, down here, right? Yeah, 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 totally. Which is yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. I love Cuckoo. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, he's, he's an he's absolute sweet G. Dude. Yeah. I mean, and it was a really, really great tour. But I'm so, I'm just so nervous now about organizing anything because I can't bear the thought of putting my soul into anything, which is I do every time, and then just not being able to do it again. Mm. It's like I just, you know, I'll do small things and online things, but just until I know, you know, like, man, my, my heart goes out to every summer festival producer right now because, like, they're just living on the edge. It's like any day they could get shut down. And it's like, and they, there's nothing, you know. like people, There's nothing they can do. Yeah, and like, and, like, people in New Zealand, they don't understand that when you, when an event doesn't happen, Sure, yeah, you should get your money back, totally. But it doesn't mean that that person didn't spend a shitload of money already. It's just like, you know, if, a, if an event cancels a week out, yeah, they're probably going to give you a full refund and they're going to lose a crap load of money, you know, like, and they're probably maybe never going to do anything and they might lose, you know. It was one of the reasons I, one, there were many reasons to stop doing camp, but one of the reasons that it ended up, it got to the point it was costing a quarter of a million dollars to put on. And, um, and after the Christchurch earthquake, I just started getting scared. And I was like, mm. you know what? Like, if I had to cancel this because that had happened in Wellington a week out, like, most of that money's spent. It's like going, and I, I, at that point, I mean, you know, the, the first camp I lost around six, seven thousand dollars, and so I went and I was in debt for like two years to my girlfriend and parents paying them back, and that's some that's the kind of level of money that you can afford to take a hit on. Yeah, two hundred grand 
is very different to five to seven grand. So it just like, and it just started me making, and I, I just, the nerves around it going like every day, oh my God, don't be an earthquake. Yeah. And then, and like, I mean, you can't control this. And so now I hadn't even thought about the idea of a virus and a pandemic. It's like, going, oh my God. So now there's another thing that I got to worry oh about. Oh God. And like, so yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm definitely like pretty nervous about all that again. You know what I mean? Like, so I don't like the idea of holding off on doing cool projects because of nerves, but it's like I think there's smart ways of going. Okay, all right. So now this is a possibility. This might happen. What's a smart yeah. way I can do something? And you're still not this? doing nothing because you're doing these online festivals. You're still oh, doing yeah. a whole bunch of shit. Oh, so man, it's not I'm, like you're I'm, fucking I'm, around. I'm, I'm ridiculously busy. It's yeah. just like I guess to the to the New Zealand music scene, they don't see that because most of my focus has been on has been internationally with this deluge for like the last year or, year or so you know of course um well ian yeah, yeah. i really appreciate you spending the time it's actually really mm-hmm. lovely for you to come here yeah. and hang out I'm, I'm just sad we didn't get to talk i mean there's just too much to talk about unfortunately but it's like i guess this thing is we don't need to talk about things people just download my book they already can see my opinions <laughs> on all the problems with the music industry but i think that's what got together like i watched this um podcast of you and you basically every single <laughs> thing you talked about in that podcast was stuff that i talked about in that book and i was like oh i can't believe yeah. this is still problems uh, yeah i, can't believe I, these are still I think I, I think the yeah. the reason why I was like, I have to get Ian on is because I think a phrase I said in that, which was the thing that is mind blowing to me is that more, there aren't more people who have carried the torch of things that Ian has done and then stopped doing. Um, and I hope that it, it happens again and we'll it's, get you back on to talk about all that stuff. I mean, it's probably the, the one thing that I'm most proud about, about the, what's carried on for me since is that now it is pretty much standard for a New Zealand small indie festival to have a stage or at least be able to like perform somewhere where you didn't, you weren't on the original lineup. Like, you know, when Chronophonium or whatever, you know, when they had, oh, I don't even know what they called it. It wasn't the Renegade stage. It was like, they had a different name for it. And there's been several festivals since. And the thing is, it's actually, people just think that that's standard. They actually like, they, they didn't realise that it's like, that was, that's not a thing that other no. festivals do. And so it just began, so I'd go to these festivals and, then, and it started happening in Australia as well. Like, um, because people who had been to New Zealand festivals that, you know, like I remember um, I went to Camp Dugues in Perth and those guys, they started that specifically after Camp Below Home and they started, a, they started a renegade room over in Australia and that was the proudest thing to be over there and I was like going, this is crazy. I should this say a renegade so room wild. was literally a room that Ian set up at, at camp that had oh. the instruments and you could book a time in if you bought a ticket to the festival well, and you could just play whatever you, you could, your yeah, band yeah, could yeah. play. Well, yeah, this thing's, it started, I didn't, I didn't even have that idea. It's just like just one, one it was the Whipping Cats, this Auckland band in 2007. And like I had to, the, it was a long story, like the Coolies had to like get back to Auckland earlier and I'd booked them a later show. So I had to give the, the Whipping Cats spot to the Coolies and the Whipping Cats didn't have a place and we we're like trying to work out where to play. And they're like, oh, why don't we just play in our cabin late tonight if we can just grab all the gear out of one of the stages. And I was like, yeah, whatever, man, that sounds cool. And then so they just threw this massive party and it was like actually one of the best. And I was like, oh, gutted, like I enjoy this. And like, it was packed. People were just like dancing on the roof. It was wild. And I was like going, man, maybe I should just let... And like so like maybe two or three acts who I hadn't actually booked to play just jumped on and just did random like spur of the moment sets. And I was like, maybe I should just let this happen. And then so the following year, um, I kind of set up a room and I put a couple of crappy amps in there. I didn't. I don't think I had a dedicated engineer. I was just like, look, if you want to play, just play, just do whatever you want, make a poster, stick it around the site. And then from the third year, I think it became an actual structured thing where I provide an engineer, full back line, full support. And then I think for the fourth year, actually, started like people would actually email me in advance and I'd start including them in the guides. It was actually a separate mm. um, guide. But it's like, yeah, and it was just funny. It became this thing that was actually like people would expect, that they expect now to go to festivals and be able to see artists who weren't on the official lineup. <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that's cool. Like yeah. I'm, I'm, 
I'm super proud of that. And um, shout out to uh, Lontalius because I saw him as ship, shipwreck at one of those renegade rooms. That yeah, was fucking yeah. awesome. A, a, a slight to shipwreck. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, 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 my, yeah, I just remember shipwreck, but I knew it was a longer name than I. Yeah, like sorry, man. Eddie. Yeah, when when <laughs> when um when I found that slight to shipwreck stuff on MySpace in 2008, like I literally remember I was in Scotland and I was listening to that and it was like mid. He's like this summer in 2008. And I was like, this is crazy. How is this kid? He's like 12, 13 at the time. I was like, this is wild. This shit's amazing. And then I worked, I, I, I kept up communications, worked with him for years. It's like, I, I think I booked him like maybe a year later to open for Die, Die, Die when they were playing, doing the form tour. Oh, so that, that would have been 2010. So it was like, a, you know, a bit later. But he was like 13, 14. Fuck, he must have been 11. What the fuck? Bro, he was, was he when he sent me that shit? He was younger than the than the people we were like. These guys are young. He was younger yeah, than yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I told you, I was <laughs> wild. And then, and so it was always a problem with me because I wanted him to play camp, but I didn't want to play in the official lineup because I didn't want him to play it too early. Like I wanted to wait until because that was kind of problem. I I, right. I, I I noticed this with bands. If I like, they'd be like, oh man, you know what? It's like this is your announcement to the country of like going. You know, if I put you on one of these big stages. You might kind of turn a whole bunch of people off. Like, I want to wait until you're fucking ready. And this is when you, the year you're fucking peaking or you're, you've got a big you've got a thing coming. And so with him, I was just like waiting. I was like waiting for the time when he'd make an impact. And um, and I think he was ready for me. I think it was Ray Spanion before he was. I can't remember. But I mean, the guy's crazy talented. He's yeah, always been crazy. He's amazing songs. But um, yeah, that was a weird thing. I don't think a lot of bands in New Zealand know how much thought I put into their careers and to where I would have them, when I would choose them to play. I was, I was just like, thinking you know, that. Like, I was yeah. thinking people, they wouldn't, I mean, they would assume probably. I mean, I, I put stupid amounts of thought into every decision to do with a band and like, you know, where they would play, when they would play. I, you know, I'd, I'd hold off on a year and I'd be like, oh no, I'll wait till next year. Or like, Well, if I know, could give like, you one personal anecdote about when you did nail it for yeah. me, that yeah. was Glass Vaults in the Forest. Um, oh. I think maybe one of the first times they played. Um, I saw them just with the like floor toms and the like when they were really ambient at the start. Was, I'd never yeah, heard of yeah. them before, and I was just sitting this forest, and they started fucking playing, and it was one. It's probably my one of my favorite camp moments of all time. So that, that, I get that, the vibe thing. Yeah, I mean that, and they're definitely a band that evolved. I mean, so for me, actually, the, generally the only reason I'd keep on inviting bands to come back is if they were different. So it's like if, so, if, if someone's going to put on the same performance, it's unlikely, or maybe there'd be a few years between. But bands like that, or like a band like So So Modern, who actually like would make a point, I'd be like going, man, I'd really love to have you guys play, but it's going to have to be different to what it was last year. What can you do this year? And they'd be like, all right, this year we'll do one song for one hour. And I was like, going, okay, let's do it. You know, or like, you know, it'd have to be something unique, you know, or that year they played where it's like the audience just got to choose the songs or, um, you know, yeah, like, Generally, or you know, or they they played this epic, like you know, basically rave set. You know, it's like bands who would be different and you know, be creative. You know, because I think a lot of bands would look, look at that as camp. They'd be like, "This is our chance to do like a performance." You know, like a show. You know, and Glass Holds, yeah, they constantly. I mean, like, I think actually the first year it was Richard Alexander. He just did a solo set. Okay. It was just him. So it was, I think it was either 2010 because I remember it was at um, the Bulls place, and he just played in one of those small rooms. He just played with him. Um, and the floor tom and a guitar, and it was just like it was just breathtaking. It was just like him doing a solid performance. Richard D. Alexander, um, shout out the listeners of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, man, like it was an incredible set. Like you know, because it was just that, it was that first EP they did. You know, um, oh, was it just called I Glass? Think they or whatever? That, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was amazing. And he just pretty much played those songs solo, and was just like it was beautiful. Yeah. And then um, I think. From there, everyone was like going, "Oh yeah, you need a band." So, like, like camp's been a beautiful thing, like you know, and that's how um, All Seen Hand came together, um, which was 
you know, at camp. It was like just a jam between, you know, Teen Hygiene, um, Ben who was on drums at that point and Alphabet Head and they were like going, oh, should we go do a set on this roof? And they were like going, hey, if, <laughs> they just asked me and they are like going, hey, if we grab all some stick gear, can we just play a set on this roof? And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. And, um, and so they just did it and then they were like, oh, oh man, this is cool. We should have, Alphabet Head should have drums. And then they got a singer and yeah, it's... Um, and there's so many stories like that through Renegade Room. I could just go on page because, and I, I, I keep this stuff so important to me that I just I know it all. Like all the performances and who did what and what all It's just like these are the most important things to me. And the friendships that came about, friendships came through tours, came through camps, bands who have stayed together, bands who have formed. It's like for me, bringing that community together is what makes all my work worthwhile. And it's like, you know, even, you know, with the Over the Antic guys, like who became one of my favorite bands, who I then toured around the world with, you know, it's like they came together through Nick submitted a demo that I just liked that I put on one of my compilations. And then I knew that Bevan, who was mastering my compilations, would love it. And so like I kind of made a point, like point out. And then they actually started writing, writing together and wrote an album together. And then Car Park in America, who now released The Beths. Um, you know, Car Park released Over the Antic and they, they toured America with freaking, um, God, Who's that fucking band? They toured with a pretty big band, Beach House. They toured with Beach House. Um, and yeah, it all started from like this kind of shared involvement in this like me grabbing a demo off my friend to go on a Loham CD, you know? Bringing people together. It's definitely, if you're not doing that, what are you doing? Ian, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me. Cheers. Thank um, you. We'll have to have you back another time. Cheers. Uh, and thanks for listening, guys. I hope you, uh, you don't have too many questions left over after that. We'll answer them next time. Uh, goodbye. Thank you. <laughs>